1: My name is Fiametta Rocco, and I'm the books and arts editor of The Economist. With me today is Lane Green, who writes our Johnson column on language. We're going to be talking about the wonder of words and his plans for the column's future. Good to have you with us, Lane.
0: Thanks. It's good to be here.
1: Now, you've been writing the Johnson column on language for The Economist's website for three years, and it's become one of our most popular offerings. On January the 30th, it will start regular publication in The Economist, print edition. I want to start by asking you about the man who inspired the name Dr. Johnson. In 1844, a year after The Economist was launched, we quoted Dr. Johnson criticising a certain kind of man, or men, it was men I'm afraid, whom he described as being the most formidable enemies of the great benefactors of the world. Men whose notions and discourse are so agreeable to the lazy, the envious and the timorous that they seldom fail to become popular in directing the opinions of mankind. He was clearly a grumpy sort and he certainly had the gift of the gab, our Dr. Johnson. So why did you choose him as your lodestar for this column?
0: I think what makes Johnson so special is that he did have that gift of the gab despite being in a profession that a lot of people think of as boring or uh, tedious uh, persnickety and he famously defined his own profession that of lexicographer as a harmless drudge in his own dictionary so he he called lexicographers drudges but he himself was anything but he was unafraid to to be funny and exciting in his definitions in his dictionary in fact he was that in his day in a way that modern lexicographers would never dare to be. Uh, And so he was not afraid of being on the wrong side of popular or received opinion. And I think that that's what that quote from our 1844 edition really gets at. So
1: how would you describe his attitude towards language itself? I mean, English was very, very fluid then. Spelling was fluid. Usage was fluid. Was he more of a grouchy old guardian of proper English? Or was he the type who casts his net far and wide and really embraces change in language?
0: It's really possible to see him as both, and if you want to recruit him to one side or the other of the big debates on language, you can have him as a sort of crotchety old drudge who is uh, defending uh, the the gates of English against the barbarian hordes. In fact, he uses that word barbarous quite a bit in the preface to his uh, dictionary in 1755. But at the same time, he was quite realistic about how language works. It was in flux in his time. As you said, it's in flux always. Language is in flux by its nature. It's a a human behavior that changes with fashion, with invention, with science, with progress, and almost just randomly as well. That was true in 1755. It's true in 2016. And so he said things like to try to to try to enchain syllables was like trying to lash the wind. And and many other quotes in that preface to his dictionary that show he was quite realistic about the fact that even though he was defending the gates against the barbarians and some of the imagery he uses, he was also realizing that change could not be halted.
1: In the three years since you started writing it, the Johnson column has become one of the most popular offerings that The Economist has. Tell us about some of the most popular topics you've covered so far.
0: Right. Well, the column, despite the name Johnson, is not only about English lexicography or grammar or usage, but also about language generally. And one of the most interesting fields to a lot of our readers apparently is the issue of language in the mind. For example, there's a lot of research about how bilinguals are slightly different than monolinguals mentally. They they seem to get dementia a few years later than monolinguals. They're better at certain tasks in a psychology laboratory. They're slightly worse at other tasks, and they respond to uh, moral uh, conundrums slightly differently. Some of the columns that I've written about language in the mind have really hit this vein and, and obviously touched a nerve with readers.
1: What about controversy in language? I mean, that's something that has always existed, but in the last few years has become something incredibly fierce. We've seen in religion in bad language, in insults, epithets, just how powerful language can be and and how much people believe in it. What have been the most controversial issues you've written about?
0: Well, right after the attacks on the Charlie Hebdo offices in Paris in January 2015, I wrote a column about blasphemy, and what the cartoonists there had done was clearly a visual sort of blasphemy in enraging some extremist Muslims who believe that their depictions of the Prophet Muhammad were worthy of their death. What I wrote about was the fact that blasphemy traditionally has been a linguistic crime. The Ten Commandments uh, focus on taking the name of the Lord in vain and dishonoring your mother and father and other crimes that can basically be done uh, linguistically by saying the wrong thing, You're, you're committing a sin bearing false witness against your neighbor is also a sin. So many of the things we can do to upset the gods, or at least our religious leaders the most, are things we can say, the ways that we use language. So it shows that words have always been perceived as powerful and potentially dangerous, even to the deity. Another one that's Tricky to write about is taboo language in, in our modern society. Uh, blasphemy is no longer a crime in most Western countries. It's still on the statute books in some places like Ireland, but it doesn't get prosecuted here anymore. But what we do prosecute people for is hate speech. So in quite a lot of European countries, it's illegal to incite hatred against a religious group or an ethnic group, and you can be prosecuted for the, the use of certain swear words in a certain context. So it's showing how taboos have changed from Religion now to race and ethnicity. So the, the guardians are no longer the priests, but, but legislators who, who make it illegal to incite hatred have really shown uh, how much our society has changed in the last couple hundred years.
1: And where do you put bad language in this? I mean, you and I are both parents of small children. So we face a sort of uphill struggle of children trying to shock with copycat language, which astonishingly in the modern world is still pretty taboo.
0: Yeah. Well, bad language is actually one of my favorite topics because it's psychologically quite interesting. Uh, on the topic of children, I advise readers that if you think that you're going to keep your kids from learning bad words by not using them around them, you are in a fantasy land. Uh, the, the children uh, will pick up the most common words in the language because uh, they hear them all around them, not just from their parents, uh, not just from their siblings, but from the world generally. And they are amazing at picking up what words are going to be important. Uh, the way bad language is pronounced, the way it's stressed when those words are used. Kids pick up on that really quickly, and so they they see the power of those words. So what I tell parents to do is to talk pretty explicitly about uh, those things to their kids and explain that some things grown-ups are able to say that children are not able to say, just like there are things that grown-ups are able to drink and children are not able to drink. Uh, rather than trying to give those swear words this kind of unspeakable power, a bit like Voldemort the Harry Potter books, where saying his name would you know, conjure him somehow, that that gives swear words far too much power in my book.
1: So you have to produce this column on a regular basis. That's no little pressure. I mean, what sparks off a column for you?
0: Well, I think of two different kinds of columns. Uh, one is what I might call the newsy column. Clearly, someone in the someone in the headlines has said something this week, or some news has come to light that makes an obvious column for that week. I'd say this is a little less than half of the columns, though. But, for example, when um, when Sarah Palin, an American politician, says that people in America should speak American, uh, that gives, a, gives you an opportunity to look at the history of the phrase speak American. And it turns out Sarah Palin is not the first and won't be the last person to use that phrase. It has an interesting history that sparked a, a fun column. Some of the other columns, though, are not particularly newsy in that week's headlines, but rather something I've been thinking about for a long time. For example, the fact that it's really quite hard to put a finger on what a word is in English. We think that a word is just something that gets its own dictionary entry or has spaces on either side but sometimes uh, two words with a space between them really function in the mind as a single word do we consider th- words like bear bearing and bears in three different words do we consider bear the animal and to bear something as in to carry it in separate words all those things are surprisingly difficult to pin down a little bit like uh, chemists don't have quite as simple a model of the atom uh, as the sort of simple solar system that you get in 10th grade chemistry a column uh, will come out of those uh, those ideas
1: they I you're a keen foreign language learner. You speak, what, six, seven languages? You've studied 13 or 14? The column certainly isn't devoted only to looking at English. You've written columns about Chinese, about Arabic, about German, about Dutch, even Catalan or Ukrainian. Now, the English are not very good at looking at other languages. What do you think English speakers can learn by studying other languages like this?
0: Well, there's two ways to think about it. One is that uh, the way that English is different from some of these other languages is just inherently interesting. The, The Chinese writing system, for example, is fascinating and utterly unlike the alphabetic system that we use in Western languages. And I think a topic like that is just brilliant all by itself without too much reference to English necessarily. Sometimes you can look at other languages and see that the way they differ tells us something about English, actually sheds light back on our languages. For example, uh, German has really long compounds. It's sort of famous for the fact that it puts bunches of words together into one big long word with no spaces, whereas English doesn't. What does that tell us about German? What does that tell us about English? And in a third vein, uh, what's interesting to me is often the politics of languages around the world. I wrote a column about uh, the uh, new Ukrainian parliament deciding to down grade Russian in the provinces where it was the majority language, uh, which was one of the excuses Vladimir Putin used to intervene in the war in Ukraine. And that was a stupid move, I think, by the part of the Ukrainian parliament. And the politics of language goes beyond Ukraine to uh, Catalan, which you mentioned, uh, the role of French in Canada, the, the division of Belgium along linguistic lines. There are so many topics around the world and only a few of them have I gotten to so far. So there are many more columns to be written in that vein as well.
1: Well, we certainly look forward to them. That was Lane Green talking to me about his very popular Johnson column on language. You can read Johnson online and in The Economist every fortnight. From London, this is The Economist. The Economist.